Welcome back, everybody. You listen to another episode of Drive Into the Basket. I'm Mike, and I hope you're all staying sane despite the difficulties the Pistons are going through. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, though. I hope I don't have the reputation of sugarcoating anything at all. Uh, this is a very dark time for Pistons fans. Year four of the rebuild, and the last time uh, this team started this poorly, Josh Smith, Greg Monroe, and Andre Drummond were all on the roster. Though, fortunately, in this particular season, they weren't playing on the, on the floor together in the starting lineup. That was the season before. Uh, Stan Van Gundy uh, was in his first year as coach. He had, in his first offseason, made the, the baffling decision to not trade Josh Smith to Sacramento when he had the chance and instead field the three bigs. And he had also made the completely baffling decision to make Josh Smith the center of his offense. And the team, I believe, started 3-24, and which is uh, about the pace this team is on at the moment. Do I think it's going to stay that bad? No. Um, that's a far cry, of course, from my belief that if everything had cut right, obviously things aren't cutting right. This team could challenge for the play, and I think that ship is definitively sailed. There are teams in the past that have made remarkable turnarounds, like, for example, the Heat in 2016-2017, who started 10-31 and and then finished the season on a 31-10 and record and barely missed the playoffs. Uh, that was a team full of veterans for the most part. I don't really see that happening here. But... I think it just has to improve because I find it very hard to believe that an an NBA team uh, will continue to be this bad. But things are at a very bad juncture. And I know I've spoken about management in the last couple episodes. I've done a lot more thinking about it. And I want to take a deeper dive into how we got to where we are today. So it boils down to a few components. Uh, You know, one is... You know, one is just, of course, issues with the roster uh, from a mechanical standpoint. And, you know, there have been some development struggles that were still early on in that case. And, you know, there are some issues with coaching, I think, and, and just players underperforming. But what I want to talk about first, and, and this ties, of course, into a lot of those factors, is what I see as just some very, very poor long-term strategy by this front office. And one thing that I want to clarify, unfortunately, we don't exactly know how much of the influence going into decision-making is Weaver versus Arntelum versus Ed Stefanski. The idea I think we've been given is that it's primarily Weaver, at least outside of the draft. But, um, you know, I just, I guess, thinking back, don't necessarily want to make assumptions. I'd like to think the general manager is exerting the most influence, especially because Weaver was brought in to do this. It's not like uh, Malik Rose, who was brought in in 2018-2019 when Ed Stefanski was, I think, very clearly the primary decision maker there. So for the purposes of this episode, let's just refer to the front office. Though I think certain things, like uh, the James Wiseman trade uh, from Weaver, who had had him first overall on his draft board in 2020, uh, were most likely spearheaded by, uh, by Troy Weaver. So uh, let's talk the, the strategy I'm referring to. Now, uh, I don't know how many of you guys remember this, but there's this pretty well-known speech that Steve Ballmer, uh, who's now the, the owner of the Clippers, gave to a group of software developers back in, I think it was the late 90s or early 2000s. And Steve Ballmer was his usual exuberant self, like really hyped up. He was running around the stage and shouting, and his shirt was just soaked through with sweat. He had these giant pit stains. And at one point during the speech or during the presentation, he just stopped and started chanting, developers, developers, developers. And of course, referring to software developers. And if we had to have that same chant for this front office, it would be development, 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 or maybe replace development with just talent, talent, talents. Uh, I think to sum it up, 
you want a balanced approach in your rebuild. It's not just, you know, we can accumulate as much raw talent as we possibly can. You also want to look to building a functional team and building a foundation and, and setting these and setting your young players up to succeed, uh, like setting up your principal players. Now, don't get me wrong. There has been a certain element of bad luck in the rebuild so far. You know, Cade's injury, for example. But I think it primarily comes down to really a combination of failure to succeed and unfortunately a certain element of strategic incompetence as well. And this essentially boils down to an incredibly imbalanced approach that completely discarded building a functional roster, having functional role players, building, you know, just building fundamentals um, and, and building the team up, you know, along with accumulating talent, even just by, you know, even if you're just fielding temporary role players, you know, who are able to give this team, uh, give any team, basically, the ability to play functional basketball. And unfortunately, I think this front office really just went with the strategy of completely blobbing together as much talent as they possibly could with absolute, with way too little thought given to those other factors. And not only do I think they did that, like basically, um, I think that they consciously, uh, I mean, not thinking about it this way, basically chose to fail and in pursuing that balanced approach by just trying to accumulate as much talent as they possibly could with no recourse to anything else. And if you'd asked me, I don't know, back in 2020, you can go back and listen to, you know, an episode, uh, my, you know, myself and my, my former co-hosts uh, recorded on that right at the beginning of the rebuild when they had signed Mason Plumlee, they had signed Jeremy Grant, and we're like, what are they doing? Um, you know, just sign a bunch of young players and just be really bad. Just be as bad as you can and see who turns out. And so, like I've admitted, I've been, excuse me, I've admitted before, I mean, I... It was the first time I'd really sat through a rebuild for uh, for any team, and uh, it was a pretty naive viewpoint. And about a year later, I knew significantly better than that. And so, basically, the, the consequences of this boiled down to, you know, and obviously, yeah, looking back, that's just not a strategy I would, you know, I would pursue. I think uh, I think I certainly know better than that now. Uh, but again, it didn't take me these whatever. It didn't take me until twenty twenty end to twenty twenty three to realize that. Uh, in any case, it you know there are, there are other elements of the rebuild strategy that uh, you know that uh, that failed um, at, really almost as a result of this or as part of it. Like one that I mentioned, I think twice now, maybe the last couple of episodes, is just failure to really find any talent at all on the periphery outside of the high draft picks that the front office was getting as a result of being really bad. I think Jalen Duran uh, was basically or remains basically the only long-term impact move that this front office has made outside of the top five. And they're, you know, they, they haven't even secured so much as solid role players in the free agent market or elsewhere, you know, to, uh, to, give, to give a longer-term impact to the team. I mean, if you, if you want to have a successful rebuild, especially when you're starting without, you know, without extra assets, though, um, I mean, certainly teams have gone through successful rebuilds without, you know, starting with extra assets. Those are nice to have. They're not essential, whatever I'd say, even independent of this team, not starting with guys that they could trade away for extra assets. Uh, This has gone very poorly. But if you want to be successful, often, you know, almost invariably, you're going to have to find guys on the periphery with later draft picks, you know, whether that be later in the first round or even in the second round uh, with trading for guys, uh, underappreciated guys who who end up being better with just signing them in the free agent markets, you know, whatever you're going to do. And uh, don't get me wrong, this uh, this front office has tried to do that. 
at least in the way of reclamation projects. Unfortunately, they have, like, unless you consider Bagway to be a success, um, I don't think that's really likely to be the case. At the very least, I don't think it'll be an impact player. Talk about him a bit later. Uh, or your high on Wiseman. Uh, basically, all of the reclamation projects have have failed. I think there have been eight of them now. Uh, some of them were signed in free agency. Some of them uh, required trading assets. Uh, one of them, Wiseman, uh, was pretty expensive, all things considered. And, you know, this ties into the next point, which is, like I mentioned, just blobbing together as much talent as you can and not even giving your young players a, an environment in which you're setting them up the most to succeed. And we can... Just one final point I want to make. I mean, it's it's not... I mean, there was... Just to go back real quick and just to go back, uh, like one chance that one golden opportunity the front office had to to find some talent on the periphery and certainly to, to, to kickstart this rebuild was the 2020 draft. Like I've said, uh, I mean, you had the front office going in there. Uh, they ended up with three picks, expended a certain number of assets, not just the, the number seven pick, but Luke Kennard, who still had value back then in four second round picks uh, to get number 19, uh, a accepting a cap dump, which was fine, but also a future first-round pick that is currently tying up this team's ability to trade future first-round picks for what it's worth until 2029 and will convey, ultimately, uh, unless the Pistons are so bad, despite gradually lessening protections, that it hasn't conveyed by 2027 and it becomes two second-round draft picks instead. Uh, and they came in, you know, they, they came out of that draft ultimately uh, once Sadiq Bay was traded with uh, a bust at number seven, um, a reclamation project center at number, you know, at number 19 and a bench big in Isaiah Stewart at, at number 16. And they even went into that draft with a very safe choice approach. I, I remember finding it remarkable that they had had three first round picks and come out of it with three sort of what appeared to be safe pick uh, players at the time, two of them outright safe pick role players. Uh, who were below average NBA athletes and had dubious ceilings. Even Killian Hayes was judged to be a relatively safe pick. And uh, I mean, I was in favor of drafting him, uh, but I thought he'd just be, you know, a piece. And, you know, maybe if everything cut right in the bottom half, you know, maybe the eighth best point guard in the league, which would still be a success, but not not the guy who's going to carry your friend, you know, your franchise to the next level. So not only did they miss out on a bunch of talent, but even the strategy was extremely suspect. I know that it was a certain focus on character uh, with, uh, with Stewart and Bay, though. I guess based on what Weaver did, ultimately, I guess you could say that maybe he feel felt like he was mistaken with uh, with the the culture aspect where Sadiq Bay was concerned. Stewart, of course, a great culture guy, but for the most part, that draft was a big opportunity to get things started, or at the very least, find some find some good talents. And the Pistons came away from it with a, with a decent number of assets expended, uh, significant uh, when it comes to pick seven, and uh, a whole lot of missed opportunity. So uh, that was, I would say, a major failure, one that definitely hasn't helped. But let's go back to the strategy. So I think we can best illustrate this overemphasis. And again, uh, a certain decision to fail at building functional teams by looking at how the team conducted itself from the 2021 uh, draft onward. And, you know, I'll give, this, I'll give them some credit when it, it certainly Weaver deserves credit and, and the front office deserves credit for targeting Jeremy Grant and giving him what was considered to be a kind of a silly contract. And ultimately, I mean, he was a, he was a, an athletic, you know, just a good two way player, uh, you know, pretty darn decent uh, creator who was a good stabilizing presence, a good contributor to this team for two seasons. But let's just get down to 2021. 
Now, when your team gets the first overall pick or whatever, and you think that you have got your franchise player, the guy who is going to you know, be a superstar and bring your franchise back to relevance, is going to be the centerpiece of the team, almost invariably, that team's one of their immediate priorities is to build a functional roster. You know, it doesn't need to be good players. I'm not talking about going, you know, like hardcore and free agency and, you know, making some win now trades and in order to, you know, make a mad rush back to the playoffs. But I'm talking about just building, you know, just at least giving this player a functional roster. Doesn't need to be a winning one, but a functional roster. Uh, For example, uh, when Luka Doncic came into the league, and it's like I'm not comparing Kate DeLuca here. Luka's pretty incomparable uh, in general, incomparable in general. There's nobody else in the league like him. And so when he came and hit the floor for the very first time, and ever since, he was surrounded by shooters. You know, there were shooters on the floor with him, you know, generally three of them at all times. He was put into a position, you know, in a functional roster that was not good, but, but at least gave him the conditions in which he would be able to operate, uh, you know, at a, at a functional level on a functional offense. I mean, this is just a very core foundational thing to do. You know, put your players, especially your key players, into a position uh, to be on a reasonable roster, a reasonable roster which has the necessary accoutrements for NBA success, uh, you know, based on whatever that player's strengths are, but also just, you know, in, in the first place, just having enough shooting on the floor. Like, we are long past the point at which everybody knows that fielding a single non-shooting perimeter shooter is going to have seriously negative impact on your, uh, on your offense, and no team should do it unless you're surrounding Giannis with shooters, or unless you got just a superstar where it's going to work that way. So uh, let's look at the 2021 offseason, which I think is the most perfectly emblematic of this approach. Uh, pardon the sniffles. So you got the first overall pick. Kate Cunningham seems like a slam dunk prospect and uh, you know can potentially be your superstar creator and uh, creator of offense and just, just lead creator, lead handler in general, uh, whom you're going to build everything around. So logically, you want to put him, you know, you want to, you know, at least give him that functional roster. But uh, let's look at what the front office decided to do instead. And this was not kind of like a halfway approach. This was them choosing to do something completely different. So we've got Cade, who, you know, has all the, you know, all of the, um, the makings of a solid creator for others, you know, can create his own offense and create for others. He really operates very heavily. In, in the pick and roll. So logically, you want to give him the shooters and you want to give him a strong pick and roll center. And you already have a strong pick and roll big on the roster who can also help with playmaking, some interior playmaking. That is Mason Plumley. Is he a good starting center? No, but he had been a solid choice with Cade. I mean, he was that pick and roll center. Uh, so what does the front office do? Literally on draft day, knowing that they're going to draft Cade, they trade down in the second round uh, to dump Mason Plumley so that they can start Isaiah Stewart instead. Isaiah Stewart, who is pretty much a pick-and-clog center who is awful on the pick-and-roll because he can't vertically space the floor. He's very ground-bound. It's tough to get him the ball. He doesn't have very good hands. He scores from below the basket. As we saw, they didn't even plan on developing him as a shooter that year. So there was absolutely nothing he could do but get in Cade's way. And you got to think they did that because, oh, hey, we are are happy with what Isaiah did last season. We want to develop him too. You know, we want to get him to the starting role and develop him. And, you know, who who cares that that this is a you know, a bad option for Cade. And who cares that we could continue to bring Isaiah off the bench and give him 20-something minutes a game? Uh, If we want to follow the center route there, you would think, okay, well, at least we could, you know, pull up a second stringer, 
you know, your backup center, who's an athletic big. So Cade can at least play some minutes with a strong athletic big, a, a guy who's going to be strong in the pick and roll. Again, Cade operates very strong, very heavily in the pick and roll. Well, we don't feel like doing that. We're going to sign Kelly Olynyk so we can have greater spacing. Never mind that Kelly Olynyk is, uh, you know, has some strong years from three, but more often is just more mediocre. But we're just going to completely ignore the necessity uh, for for a good pick and roll big for Cade. And again, for more spacing, Isaiah Stewart can't space the floor at that point, obviously. Uh, and, you know, in fact, we're just not going to have an athletic big on the roster altogether, which is pretty rare for an NBA team and is, you know, again, this pick and roll heavy franchise player of yours. That is a ridiculous oversight that we were ultimately acknowledged at the end of the season because, uh, well, let's look to the third string center. Maybe at least we'll have an athletic center there. You know, we can either sign a, a guy like, uh, I think it was Damian Jones, who is an awful defender, but a super, you know, an excellent pick and roll guy or whoever. Draft Jericho Sims, who is, you know, available in the 50s and is unlikely to be a good NBA player. But, you know, whatever, this is the bare minimum. Thirds, you know, we, we're not really looking for big things here. Uh, you know, at least he can, is a super athletic big, you know, just give Kate something. No, instead, uh, we're going to go with Luka Garza. We want to see if he has NBA upside, even though he has virtually no chance of ever making it to the NBA because he's incredibly unathletic. And you know what? We're not only going to do that, but we have him under a two-way contract. We are going to pointlessly elevate him onto the main roster instead of finding somebody else there. <clears throat> Why would you do that? Well, presumably, like I said, they want to see, well, what can we get out of Luka Garza? And who cares, I guess, about, you know, about, you know, putting together not only a functional team, but, uh, but building a little bit around our franchise player here and giving him, you know, putting him in position to succeed. Let's look at the rest of the roster. So they start with Killian Hayes playing next to Cade. It makes sense. They want to see if, you know, their two recent high draft picks can play together. I think the chances, and I, I've got to think that they realize this, of the two of them actually working together were extremely low. Uh, they both operate heavily on the ball. They, um, neither one of them is particularly athletic, which uh, is kind of an issue if you want to have the, I mean, that's, that's the lesser concern. But if you want to have the least athletic backcourt in the league, you know, by a wide margin with Killian being well below average and Cade being average at best. In any case, you kick Killian off the ball, you know, ostensibly back then, we still thought that he had potential as a lead handler and he's not going to have that in the starting lineup. Okay. And of course, you don't know if he can shoot because he certainly hadn't done it in his uh, very truncated rookie season, hadn't really done it in Euro Cup either. Uh, but he had good indica- he had good indicators, at least. You know, in, in his final Euro Cup tournaments, he shot well from three in limited sample size. He had very high free throw percentage. He looked like he had solid form. Um, but that's a question mark. And ultimately, your contingency, if that doesn't work out, is Corey Joseph. And work out, it did not. Killian was awful and a horrible spacing liability uh, who just made life a lot more difficult for Cade. And you turn to Corey Joseph, who is still a reasonably decent backup point guard, and you get lucky because Corey Joseph has um, has just kind of abruptly developed into a guy who can space the floor at a fairly high level at around 40% on on a relatively low volume. And, you know, so basically, you know, Cade's partner in the backcourt is... uh, Maybe a slightly below-average shooting guard. Excuse me, below-average point guard, Corey Joseph's like six foot two. You know, but I've always said Kojo got a bad rap. You know, he did exactly what the team asked of him. He was a great locker room guy. And next to Cade, at least, he provided a guy who can handle the ball a little bit and uh, and and could space the floor. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this, but this 2021-2022 lineup was still the best by far of any consistent lineup that Cade has played with. So also, you've got Sadiq Bey who, uh, you know, is a high-percentage shooter. You've got Jeremy Grant, who I described earlier, solid veteran, uh, not particularly well coached by Dwayne Casey, but uh, but just, yeah, a solid veteran creator 
uh, you know, who's just a very stabilizing presence on the team. And then you've got Pick and Clog center Isaiah Stewart. Why was it the best? Because at least Kate had the shooters around him. And for the record, I, I think there's this kind of what I think is just uh, almost kind of like a myth that Cade was really bad in his rookie season. Cade did have his struggles in the first quarter of his rookie season. I'd say probably in large part because he missed almost all of training camp. He missed almost he missed all preseason. He came in cold. He had to get in the game shape in his first NBA games. Uh, they brought him along slowly. It just it took him some time to speed it, you know, to get up to speed. It took him about a quarter of the season, though he missed some of that with injury. And he really came online in late November. And from then on, like for a span until he had some, uh, you know, some stingers at the very end of the season, for I think it was 47 games, he averaged uh, about 18 and 7, or was maybe 19 and 7. Uh, not great efficiency, but, you know, I think 52-ish percent true shooting, uh, which is not bad for, you know, a rookie who comes in, and especially with Jeremy Grant's injury, is playing, you know, the majority of his season as the lead handler and lead creator for a bad team and one without Grant that had bad spacing in the starting lineup and had bad spacing overall because, again, the front office didn't really do its job in this situation or focus too much on blobbing talent. You know, no athletic bigs until Marvin Bagley. So Cade was not bad as a rookie. And, I mean, he he showed a lot of potential in that season. But, yeah, this this was his best starting lineup. Now, let's look further than that. Okay, well, do we have depth, uh, you know, in, in terms of shooters off the bench? Do we have depth there, or do we have any depth in the case that, uh, say, one of the forwards, Bay or Grant, gets injured? And, you know, is Grant did get injured? Uh, well, the answer is no. I mean, Isaiah Livers is on the roster, but he's injured. They have no idea when he's going to be back. So uh, who do you have in terms of forward depth? Well, you've got Josh Jackson, a reclamation project, who could be a good player if he could shoot, but he can't shoot. You know, he's one of those guys who could be really good if he can just get a shot together. It could be just strong 3 and D4, but he can't shoot. He couldn't shoot last season. Can't shoot now. Who else do you got? Well, you got Hamadou Diallo. Hmm, what's his situation? Well, he could be a strong player if he could shoot, but he can't shoot. And he's never been able to shoot. Uh, so these are guys where it's like, well, we're going to keep them on the roster and not put any debt behind them because, well, we just we want to see if they can develop. And if they can't, I guess, well, whatever. And who else do you have in terms of forward depth? You've got Trey Lyles, a guy who in alternating seasons is good and then terrible and then good and then terrible as a shooter and is just completely unreliable. And that's it. In the backcourt, beyond Corey Joseph and ultimately Killian Hayes, who spent that entire season as a terrible shooter and basically is one of the worst offensive players in the league and one of the worst big-minute players in the league, which is a distinction he would earn again the next season. Uh, you have Frank Jackson, who has had one good shooting season and two bad ones. Uh, you've got Rodney Magruder, who can shoot, but he can't do anything else. You're hoping, you know, he's just a locker room guy. Uh, you got Saban Lee, who's a third string point guard, who, well, I mean, you guessed it, can't shoot. And, you know, then you've got Olenek, who would ultimately get injured, but you signed him, you know, for his shooting. So you've got at least that going for you at the cost of giving Kate a pick and roll big. So uh, this was a roster on which no emphasis, aside from signing a Linux at the cost of a more valuable commodity, was given to actually surrounding Cade with a functional roster. Instead, we had a bunch of development guys who couldn't shoot. Um, you know, even Killian Hayes was an un, you know an unknown quantity, and it turned out he was bad. And so, and, and Cade had to play with a non-spacer in the starting lineup for most of the season. Well, Jeremy Grant was out for around well, about half the season. Jeremy Grant was out for I believe forty games. And uh, nonetheless, this was the best roster Cade has played with because at least he had three, you know, three shooters in the starting lineup. Uh, no athletic bigs until Bagley, who was himself a reclamation project. So you're starting pretty bad there. This is just, I think, a perfect encapsulation on, on just how 
completely and horribly imbalanced uh, the you know the strategy of the front office was for building this roster. It is just accumulation of raw talent at all costs with no reference to anything else for the most part. All right, so what happens next? Oh yeah, and again, just not not really putting together a good development environment at the same time. It's like we're just going to mash together talents, but development environment? No, no let's let's not worry about that. You know, that's that's less important. So uh, you move on to 2022, and things get actually you know, arguably worse. So one thing is that you, you know, you do trade Jeremy Grant for Jalen Duran and solid trade. I mean, Duran is presumably your center of the future. You do lose out with Jeremy Grant because again, he's that stabilizing veteran presence, a guy who can create, a guy who can play defense, just, uh, just a good guy to have in your starting lineup with your, uh, you know, with, with these young players and uh, you don't really replace him. Uh, let's look at what happens in, in that offseason. You draft Jaden Ivey, who's a relatively raw player. He's probably going to be in the starting lineup. And you draft Jalen Duran, who's a relatively raw player. I mean, he'll ultimately be in the starting lineup. Uh, you trade for Burks. That's a good move. You get some shooting. You trade for Boyan. That's a good move. You get some shooting. But uh, ultimately, you are fielding. Oh, yeah. And you, you signed Marvin Bagley to a three-year deal. And I don't really like that. I think that was, uh, I, I like the trade. It was a low-cost flyer. Uh, it should be noted that Trey Lyles kind of reinvented himself in Sacramento by losing 20 pounds and rediscovering how to shoot. With the Pistons, he was forced into playing center and just a you know bad defender there, couldn't shoot threes, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, Bagley still can't shoot, which is kind of an issue. Uh, reclamation project. Again, like basically, you've added shooting to the team just by, I mean, Boyan and, and Grant is kind of a, a wash, though Boyan can't really create the same way on the ball that Grant can. And you add Burks. Okay, that's nice. Uh, let's look at the starting lineup that Cade had in season two. Uh, so in season two, uh, Cade started, you know, and, and he didn't play many games, but he started alongside the complete abomination of a front court that was Sadiq Bey, Boyan Bogdanovich, and Isaiah Stewart, which is probably the least athletic, most undersized front court I have, starting front court I have ever seen in the NBA. The front court could shoot, but spacing is not all about just shooting in the NBA. You know, Bey could shoot. Boyan could shoot Stewart after a really slow five games uh, from the three-point line, ultimately got his act together, and over the next like 38, 37 games actually shot pretty well from the three-point line. Unfortunately, you also need what you know I like to refer to as athletic spacing, the ability to beat your defenders off the ball. Boyan could get himself open because he's very smart, um, but he wasn't going to be beating anybody with athleticism. Bay could sort of do it just by being smart, but he definitely wasn't going to be beating anybody by way of athleticism. Isaiah Stewart, of course, is not beating anybody off the ball, period. Uh, that remains the case. So, and also the three of them were a complete disaster on defense because they were just really too slow as a trio to do much of anything. So Cade in this situation, uh, sure, he's still got shooters, though Ivy starts off pretty raw from the three-point line. Okay. And uh, nonetheless, his actual spacing is crap, and the starting lineup is kind of a disaster. So this was actually a functional downgrade, which is far from ideal. And you look at the bench in that season. You've still got Hamadou, who can't shoot. You've got Marvin Bagley, who can't shoot. You've got Jalen Duran, who, of course, is not going to shoot. You've got Killian Hayes, who can't shoot. You've got Livers back, and he can shoot, but he's not really healthy <laughs> you know, throughout much of the season. You ultimately put liver excuse me ultimately send Sadiq Bey to the bench to bring in Isaiah Stewart to play what I maintain continues to be out of position at power forward um and and I'll I'll opine more about that later but basically 
you know, you've reduced stability on the team further. You have arguably even less shooting than you had the season before. And it's like, well, we just want to mash all this talent together again. You know, we want to give Diallo minutes. Uh, Duran can't shoot, which is fine, but Bagley can't shoot. Um, Killian Hayes can't shoot. And uh, we're going to have to play Kojo in minutes again, uh, ultimately, you know, after Kate ultimately gets injured. But it's yet another team that is not a functional roster. Uh, you know, the Pistons add some guys, you know, they replace Grant with Boyan, you know, you add Burks, but it is still not really a functional team. And then it arguably takes an even further dive in season three. You know, uh, like I, I don't have an issue with the Asar pick. You know, I think it was the re- it was the rational pick and really the the most reasonable pick to make at the time. He's got high offensive upside, excuse me, high defensive upside, without a doubt, like great defensive upside. He's a strong rebounder. Uh, he is a good connected passer. He's an incredibly hard worker, smart player. I really like his star. He is, however, probably in like the zeroth percentile as a half court scorer. And uh, you know, what did the uh, the front office do this season to kind of account for that? And it's like there are only so many guys you can really develop at the same time. You can ameliorate this by playing a star in lesser minutes. So uh, what does the front office do? It's like, well, you have two tests this summer, this last summer. Um, you could ideally sign some solid role players who are actually going to be with this team uh, in the longer term and can provide, you know, that would be great in general, even if that means trading Boyan, which I've gone on record. And I think he's, he's going to be valuable to the team this year, but you can sign, he's not going to be with the team in the long term. You can sign some longer term guys, you know, even if they're just peripheral role players, you can at least accumulate some depth so that we can be sure of fielding a functional team. And, uh, however, that was apparently a little bit too much to ask. You know, if you, if you look at forward, sure, you've got Boyan, you've got Isaiah Stewart, who, if we want to talk, uh, you know, a functional roster is in my opinion, more or less dead weight at power forward. And, uh, and I really resent Troy Weavers or whoever it is, their apparent obsession with playing him at power forward, despite him having shortcomings on the athletic side of things that are major problems and are completely insurmountable, you know, most notably him being incredibly slow for the position such that he's never going to beat his man off the ball. He's only open if the uh, if the defense decides to leave him wide open. Otherwise, they don't really need to to have to worry about him moving, uh, let alone beating somebody off the dribble in a way that's extremely helpful. Uh, you know, to do it at, at least a basic level in order to you know get the defense moving and give yourself more options for wrong footing it. Like basically, even if he's hitting his threes, I'd say he's he's pretty much dead weight, or or uh, a minus either way. You know, unless he's got like an incredibly advantageous matchup and can just bully somebody physically, though, even then he's got such a poor handle that he's likely to to face issues with losing the ball when he tries to back his way to the basket. So, you know, if you want to just look at the starting lineup, you're starting with Isaiah Stewart there. So I wouldn't necessarily call him forward depth because I don't think he should be playing forward. I think he's a bench center. Uh, Now, Boyan is injured. Nobody sees that coming. Uh, Livers gets injured. Maybe you want to see that coming a little bit. But uh, do you want to sign a depth forward? I mean, you've acquired, you've blown a lot of your cap space in the offseason by acquiring Joe Harris, along with some very modest draft compensation, half of which you send over to Washington to uh, trade for Monte Morris, which I think was a good trade. Though I'll get, a, I'll get into that very, very shortly. Joe Harris is not your forward depth. Joe Harris, you should know if you're the front office from watching him last the previous season and from previously in his career that he used to be an elite shooter. Even then, he was not the fastest by any means. He just had two ankle surgeries. You look at his performance in the season before, he is completely and utterly washed at the NBA level because he is now far too slow to play NBA basketball in, you know, in today's league, maybe a decade ago, but not today. Um, now, could you just go out and, and find like a decent depth forward? No, apparently that's too much to ask. You look, for example, if we want to talk about fielding a, funct- a functional roster. Oh, well, real quick, you know, uh, 
obviously the big issue here is that this creates the condition uh, conditions necessary for Asar Thompson to have to play big minutes. We know from Monty Williams that he was not going to start, you know, originally uh, if Boyan had been healthy, which I think makes perfect sense because, uh, like I said, Asar great contributions on defense. You know, great contributions on the boards, super hard worker, great in transition, you know, and, and this, the idea, and I mean, if he can improve upon this, you know, uh, basically your, his half court scoring is absolutely and utterly terrible. And the front office knew this coming in. Uh, this is, this is not a knock on Asar. He's just very, very bad in terms of half court offense. He can't shoot. He's coming in from overtime elite where it is against much, much easier opposition. He was effectively a zero level creator and very efficient, very inefficient in the half court. So you know, despite his contributions elsewhere, you know, everywhere else but scoring, he is a gaping hole on offense in the half courts, and he is an enormous drain. And a player like that, uh, again, you don't want to just mash all these guys together and just say, well, we want to develop him too, even though, you know, and play him in big minutes. I know that was a necessity, but the, the conditions for him to, to even be playing there should never have existed in the first place. You know, just to, to repeat myself again, you want to have balance here. You want to be able to produce a you know, a coherent roster that can play coherent NBA basketball with the needs of today's NBA. And you want to have stabilizing presences, like enough solid role players that you can really keep a roster together. And again, you just got what you need. And you also have the ideal development environment for your players. Uh, now, because the front office chose not to get that forward depth, Asar ended up forced into big minutes. Asar, who was playing alongside Isaiah Stewart, who is probably, you know, who in terms of big minutes starting power forwards is the worst in the league right now. Again, Isaiah, I think, is, is being done dirty, basically, or at the very least, I don't think it's his fault. He's just, he's not fit to play big minutes of power forward and anything but mismatches, even then, spot minutes of power forward. So... I mean, sorry, you're not worrying about putting him in a position to succeed because he's just got a long way to go on offense. And if he can get there as a shooter, then, like I've said, he's got very, very high upside and, and just in terms of his ability to contribute and can start on a championship team. And if he can get his off-the-dribble offense together and improve his handle, uh, he's, you know, potential all-star upside. But he's not there yet. He's coming in incredibly raw. So uh, you want to talk about Cade, for example. Now you're absolutely not putting him in a position to succeed because you are starting him with just a... a like a, a power forward who can shoot but not really space the floor, a, a small forward who is one of the worst in the league at half-court offense. Uh, I should mention, Sarah Thompson, you look at his stats, of all players who have attempted 30 or more threes, he is the worst in the league in terms of percentage by 7%. Uh, he's shooting, I think, uh, 13% from three right now and is just happily left open for obvious reasons. And, and cuts are nowhere, nowhere near enough to compensate for that. He's good at that, but that's something that NBA defenses are very good at defending. Uh, his his man being sagged off makes it that much easier, and et cetera, et cetera. It's a low-volume source of offense. I've talked about this before. Um, sorry, I digress. Uh, and, I mean, we can get a little bit in the lineup decisions here. Well, uh, Monte Morris, who probably would have started uh, while uh, Monte was doing his thing, whatever it was with, with Dwayne Casey, excuse me, not with Dwayne Casey, with, with Jaden Ivey, who I think, you know, who knows, maybe Monty's tough love helped him. Maybe this is just correlation does not equal causation. And Ivey, who was very kind of excoriated his own defense in the offseason, said he was terrible, was just seeing some of the improvement you might just want to see and expect out of a second-year player. Uh, whatever the case, uh, so Monty Morris got injured, and this was a, a coaching decision, but this brings me back to the, you know, to the next uh, unequivocal failure of this front office in, in the offseason. Killian Hayes has been terrible the last two seasons. You almost saw the front office being very ready to move on from him just by signing a guy, trading for a guy, Monte Morris, who, uh, who was going to take his job. But uh, they made no efforts whatsoever to find a third-string point guard. And 
That created the conditions for a single injury to make Killian uh, to go into big minutes again when he is just completely and utterly unreliable to take on those minutes. And though he has improved from his previous two seasons, but starting at such an incredibly low point that he's still terrible. Still can't, and he's certainly completely incapable of being a lead guard because the guy can't penetrate at all. You know, he's, he's also a spacing liability, just treated like a joke by defenses everywhere. So, of course, you have Monty Williams who chooses to compound the issue by playing Killian, making the mind-boggling decision to play Killian Hayes in the starting lineup. And thereby, I mean, just fielding one non-shooter on the perimeter of the starting lineup, I'm going to say this again, is a big problem for your offense. Fielding two of them is a completely insane, just completely insane sin in the modern-day NBA that is incredible. It's incredible that that even happens. And, you know, you want to talk about putting Cade, for example, not in a position to succeed. And Cade has had his own issues. I'll talk about those. Uh, that was just awful, and Killian Hayes should never have been in a position uh, to have to play big minutes. Um, but again, I, I don't doubt that the front office was looking at him and saying, oh, well, you know, maybe he'll show us something this season. You know, we'll let him be third string. We'll give him another chance. And uh, But no, we're just not going to actually have a contingency plan in, in the event that he fails. So I've, I've been going on and on about this, and I, I hope I haven't rambled. But it's just, it's just this runaway focus on development. Well, you know, just accumulating talent, rather. Well, you know, actually at the same time, not putting it into, into position really to succeed. It's just, you know, let's just blob this all together. And a more balanced approach is necessary. And if we want to talk about, like, the keystone on this and this obsession with accumulating talent, we can look at James Wiseman. Like, uh, this team already had Marvin Bagley as a project center. Uh, they had traded for him, you know, excuse me, they had traded for him a year earlier. They had signed him to a three-year deal seven months earlier. Uh, you had drafted your, your prospect of center of the future in Jalen Duran seven months earlier. And then suddenly this team is trading away Sadiq Bey uh, very quickly. Bey, who had his issues, but was a rotational shooting forward uh, for an extremely, a very sub-rotational center who's going to be your second project center and may not even find minutes in the roster and is nowhere near ready to play NBA basketball. And this one, uh, I would say pretty conclusively, was Troy Weaver, who, this is a little bit frightening, had... Uh, Wiseman at the top of his 2020 draft board, which means, my goodness, does that mean if the Pistons had picked number one, that Wiseman would have been the choice over Anthony Edwards, over uh, even Lamelo Ball? I mean, that's scary. And I think that Bay was traded, uh, that it happened so suddenly because Weaver had an opportunity to acquire Wiseman. And it's like, well, you know, he's potential talent. Let's go out and get him. And this trade was more costly. Again, trading away Sadiq Bay, you could have kept him. There was it, He want, may have wanted an extension and you know in the high teens per year, but... He was not a free agent this last summer. Atlanta kept him. They didn't extend him. So it's just gone way too far. And uh, again, I think that the front office almost willingly failed to, to pursue a balanced approach. Uh, stabilizers on this team right now, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bunch of young talent um, without anything in the way of you know balance in the roster in terms of stabilizers and guys you can rely upon. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm just repeating myself now. So uh, let's talk about just the current roster which, and I've covered a lot of its issues. Again, too little shooting. And, oh yeah, Monte Morris. Uh, here's one thing. I really hope that the team wasn't aware of his medical issues when they traded for him, which is a possibility. This is complete speculation, but Monte Morris, who is one of the best backup point guards in the league, a very steady contributor. Um, this is the kind of guy that is actually, who is actually quite useful to a rebuilding team. Just a steady handler um, who is smart and safe with the ball and makes good decisions. Yet the Wizards let go of him for one second round pick. I got to think that contenders would have been willing to trade for the guy. 
Um, it was the price so low because he was known to be going into the season with injury issues. And at this point, I mean, the Pistons might not get Monte Morris back until more than halfway through the season. And who knows, may not get him back for the season in general. And of course, if the front office knew that and still didn't go for a third string point guard, then there were real problems. But yeah, let's look at the, let's look at the issue and the issues here. And I want to say first that if like your team full of youth is so bad at fundamental things like shooting threes and so unstable that you can't have enough shooting or enough stability because you're missing two veterans, then you have done an exceptionally poor job of building a roster in general. And if you build a team that's starting off this badly, then you you know you've been in a situation where the team's actual performance has gotten worse year over year. Uh, throughout this rebuild i mean so much has gone wrong here but uh, you know let's let's go over this briefly so yeah you've conditioned created the conditions for killian hayes and to play big minutes i'm going to do this in no particular order uh you have far too few creators it's basically Cade and ivy and uh you know monte morris to an extent so the number of guys you can actually give the ball to and, and ask them to create a bucket is very few the number of guys who can actually handle the ball and penetrate is very few it's those same three guys, Cade and Ivy and Monty Morris, and you're missing even one of them, uh, then suddenly, at the very least, the bench now, as we saw last game, for example, it has nobody who can penetrate. And I don't think that was reason enough to keep Ivy in the, in the starting, you know, coming off the bench. But right now, you've got five guys who can't penetrate. It's a bunch of passing around the perimeter, which is very easy for the defense, uh, the defense to stop. So guys who can take the ball and even penetrate, uh, let alone get a bucket, you're very short on that. You have too many guys who can't shoot. You have players playing out of position. Stewart, for example. You've basically got four centers in the rotation, and that's when, when you know, depending on whether Bagley or Wiseman plays, Bagley, to uh, to his credit, has actually improved as a rim protector. Um, on offense, is still kind of like a glorified traditional big, and still, if you make him make decisions in the pick and roll, for example, he's, he's going to screw up. I think he's still a negative value player. Um, I mean, I, I, I just feel like, you know, inadequate forward debt, inadequate shooting. Um you know, just, just, just no stability. Uh, you know, it, it comes in, in, in this last off season, I mean, the team's moves were to take on Joe Harris, a useless NBA player in order for picks and sure you're reaching the cap floor, which is necessary for you to get luxury tax sharing revenue. Um, but probably could have been done through other means. You could have just signed somebody in free agency and, um, yeah, you haven't added anybody to help stabilize this team. You haven't, you know, added extra shooting because Joe Harris can shoot, but he can't really play the NBA anymore. <sighs> There are just so many problems. Uh, we move on to coaching. And oh, yeah, I should mention this team on, it just does not, even if Boyan is in the lineup, does not have an honest-to-goodness power forward, period. And that's kind of an oversight. You look at it last night, for example, when the team was getting stomped on by Kyle Kuzma because they had nobody who can stop him. Um, you know, Isaiah Livers is, you know, is a bench role player. Stewart was not going to defend Kuzma. That's um, just the team doesn't have an honest-to-goodness power forward. It's a massive gap in the team, and that's in part because I think Troy Weaver has an excessive frustration, you know, excessive fixation on oh, we want to give Isaiah Isaiah Stewart can be a power forward. You know, we want to play him and give him a chance because we think he can, you know, we can develop him there. Whether or not he thinks that Isaiah Stewart is the future at power forward, which uh, I hope he, at the very least, has been disabused of that notion. Uh, but let's look at Monty Williams who at this point, I mean, I thought that the Pistons were getting a genuinely good regular season coach. Unfortunately, at this point, he looks like Dwayne Casey 1.1, but making possibly even worse rotation decisions. And uh, the team seems to be quite a bit less happy. I mean, they, were, they weren't happy losing under Casey, but he did a great job at the locker room. So uh, Monty's rotations are terrible. 
you know, we saw that in the first 10 games of the season when he was fielding a starting lineup that was guaranteed to fail. And I wonder how much more of a leash Monty Williams is, uh, whatever, I don't like that word. I wonder how much more latitude he's going to get from the front office to be making decisions that are actively contrary to winning, like, for example, playing Killian and Asar together. But for the first 10 games, that starting lineup was actively contributing to losing. Um, he gives Ivy way too little priority. Ivy only gets to handle the ball if, uh, if the play breaks down. He rides Cade constantly. Like this vaunted half a second possession offense. Obviously, it's it's not as simple as that. You're always going to have your lead hand or who's going to spend time on the ball. But it's basically what KB wants you to initiate on every play. Um, Ivy, who you know has done quite well when he's actually gotten to you know gotten to uh, to handle the ball, doesn't really get to do it all that much. Um, just like the, the the awful bench lineups, the unnecessary platoon swaps. The I got to go back to the rotations at the beginning of the season were so bad. The losing control at the end of close games just like Dwayne Casey did, and basically saying, well, just, okay, just, you know, just take the ball and score with it. And, uh, you know, even though you're exhausted, and even though we could actually run plays, just just take the ball and score with it. I'm not, you know, my timeouts, what are those, you know, in the last second, just, you know, take the ball and score with it. Um, it it's just been bad. Like, even little things, like, again, putting Killian and Asar on the floor together. Um, like, very few situations in which you actually have enough spacing, and that's the opposite of enough spacing, and they've been hideously bad because the team can't play, it can barely play offense with Asar on the floor. Um, and with killing the both of them, it's utterly hopeless. And in the defense, I want to mention about Asar's defense, which has been excellent. It is very difficult in today's NBA for an individual, um, you know, for a perimeter defender to have an enormous impact on defense. Uh, bigs have much more of a capability to do so. And if teams didn't, excuse me, if voters didn't occasionally just get tired of voting for big men, uh, they would just basically, it would be centers and Draymond, who's primarily an interior defender every year. Like occasionally they just get bored and you see somebody like Marcus Smart win defensive player of the year. Uh, much like back in uh, back in 2006, voters, I think, were just bored voting for LeBron. And so Derrick Rose won the MVP. He was maybe the third best player in the league that year. So Asar's defense is very good, but the actual impact it's going to have is significantly less than what he costs on offense. So, like, this is small stuff. But it's like, why are you, uh, like, you know, maybe you need Asar on the floor to, to guard Kyle Kuzma when he's going nuclear. Why are you putting Stanley and Mude in to guard him? Um, just the offense is very simple-minded. Like if, if we go back in this checklist for Casey, simple-minded offense, you know, failure to adapt, losing control of games and wait, uh, you know, wait, uh, wait in the game, losing control of the offense, your rotations are poor. Like it's scary. It's scary. This guy is signed for six years at a high salary. I'm really fervently hoping that we see better. But Monty Williams has contributed actively to losing, like 100% with his uh, with his early rotations in that starting lineup. 100% contribute to losing, and I don't doubt that he knew that. And and even after that, I mean, his coaching has not been clever. His coaching has been uh, below average. So uh, that is scary. So uh, what do we do from here? You know, uh, how can things improve? Like getting Boyan back will help. Uh, Monty Morris, who knows when he gets back, and we're going to be subjected to, to, to minutes for Killian until then. Uh, Killian, whom I think is, is still injured. Uh, he sprained his shooting shoulder, and he's barely been shooting at all since he came back. I think they're playing him injured because there's, you know, there was such a failure in securing enough guard depth that they have to play Killian Hayes injured just because Monte Morris is out. Um, Killian is really just the the, uh, the the draft punishment that that keeps on giving. It's not just that he's a, he was a complete bust with a number seven pick. Not just that he was picked, but he was picked before much better players. It's that Pistons fans just continue to be subjected to watching him play and watching him do terrible on the court. It's uh, it, it's kind of excruciating. But uh, you know, Boyan coming back will help. I think some guys have to. You know, I don't think we'll see Sasser continue to be terrible from the floor. He's been awful since that last big game against uh, against Philadelphia. Burks has been real bad from the field, though he's contributed a lot of free throws. Um, hopefully, continue to see Cade improve. 
Um, see Ivy get more usage. Uh, see Webbers hopefully shoot better. And, you know, I'd like to see a different start, a very different starting lineup when Boyan is back, assuming Livers can get it together as a shooter and get, you know, we know he's a good shooter. I'd, I'd love to see the starting lineup be Cade, Ivy, uh, Livers, Boyan, probably Livers a power forward, and Duran, just so we can run a functional offense. It's just such an important thing. Livers is a solid enough defender. Duran's had his issues. I mean, Duran is still pretty raw. Um, but you know, Ivy's made some strides, but Duran's, you know, Duran's decent. Uh, Cade hopefully can get back to, to being a decent defender. Um, but, and don't underestimate the impact of having success on one side of the floor. You have success on offense. You know, these guys should always, always be fully motivated, but that can really get you going on the other end. But I, I think things will have to improve just because I don't think the team can continue. I think it's the, the likelihood of them continuing to play at this terrible level is just inherently low. How much can they improve? Who knows? Is a trade coming? This team doesn't have many trade assets, and I don't think it really makes sense to, you know, unless it's a move that's really going to help you going into the future, and uh, and you're not just going to burn pointless years in the player's contract, and you're not trading away, like, uh, you know, a pick and a swap in 2029 and 2030 just to make your team, uh, at least this season, just move from really bad to below average, um, which is more or less what a but anything beyond like a spectacular trade that the Pistons really get the better of is going to do. And I don't know how they would do that because they can only, that's all the draft stock they have to offer. And I don't think they're going to trade away any of the team's principal players. So, I, I mean, I think it'll improve, but this hurts. This season really hurts. And, you know, this is, this is just, um, this is just pure hope talking. Maybe this team will, will really improve and get it together. I don't want to say it's not going to happen. But you know what? Regardless of how very painful this season has started out and very discouraging and very deflating this season has started out, we still got plenty of season left. There are more than 60 games remaining, and there's time for this team to make some real progress, particularly the youth to make some real progress, and for the Pistons to hopefully give us some stretches of decent basketball and maybe even good basketball. Okay, uh, I'm going to finish off the episode as usual with some listener-submitted topics and like I've said many times, I really appreciate hearing from you guys, uh, whether it's topic ideas or feedback or really anything. You know, thanks so much to those of you who who contribute these, and and just those of you who who are in touch about how you feel about the show. So uh, one of these I got was a request that I go over the game against the Wizards a little bit. I'm recording this the night after the the unfortunate, and that was a tough game to watch. It was it was a tough game to watch the Pistons really fall apart against the other worst team in the league, a team that is in year one of a rebuild with a pretty darn bad roster. So I'm just going to go over some positives and negatives I saw from the game. I mean, the Pistons completely falling apart was was definitely not a positive. So uh, let's go over the positives first. Uh, Asar Thompson has his issues, but it's just a joy to watch the guy in transition. He is, uh, just ferociously runs the floor in transition. He's super athletic. He can make some great plays there. And uh, it's just great to watch. And, and again, all the guy really needs is a shot to become like a, a super strong 3 and D forward. We saw much better effort from Wiseman. And this is almost kind of like a bare minimum thing. And just this, it's a good thing to see, but we want this to be the expectation at all times that Wiseman goes out there, sets hard screens, really uh, plays very physically around the basket, uses his big frame to clear out space before he takes shots. That was good to see, just good to see him playing more engaged. This is one thing about Wiseman. Oh, actually, I got another another question about Wiseman. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about him later. Ivy's passing. You know, Ivy made a lot of good passes. He is the guy most capable of jutting into the interior and drawing multiple coverage because, you know, if, if there's any chance that 
and there is always a high chance he's going to get past his defender because his athleticism is really something. He'll draw coverage going in, and he throws these bullet passes. Uh, he did a great. We saw that a lot in the late stages of last season when he was taking on more of a playmaking role, at which he did pretty well. And we saw that last night. That was great. Please, Monty, give him more reps on the ball. Uh, Livers. So I know he had a tough game, but Livers is, I think, going to be. And he's got to get his three-point shot back, of course. And he's only been back for a brief time after missing for not playing NBA basketball for quite some time. But I think he's going to be a sort of veteran stabilizing presence. Livers, veteran at age 25. He just seems like a really. He's a steady player on the court. I think he's he's a good voice in the locker room. I think he's one of these stabilizing players you really want to have. So even though he had a rough game, I was I was really glad to see him back and and just out there playing. Um, what's just yeah just the steady his steady style of play i don't think again i don't think that livers is going to be more than a bench role player but you know the bench role player who can possibly give you some minutes in the postseason that's that's a good guy and who is a good presence and who doesn't make many mistakes at all i mean that's a good guy to have let's move on to the negatives monty's rotations as i said earlier were quite bad ivy just didn't get to handle even even though he was arguably the best person on the court didn't get to handle the ball except if the play broke down, lineups with zero penetrators that wasted possessions because they were all on the perimeter. Amude coming in and, and just at a weird time. Asar not really getting a chance to defend Kyle Kuzma when he was stomping all over the Pistons. That was just weird. Sasser on the floor, you know, while, again, Kuzma was stomping the Pistons. Sasser on the floor, who was ice cold and has been ice cold, has made four threes in the last eight games now. And just on the floor for big minutes in the fourth for reasons that kind of elude me. Uh, Cade Cunningham. So this is something about Cade. And... Uh, I've said plenty, I think, about how I think that he's not really being put into a position to succeed. And yeah, the spacing has been comically bad, for example. And also, he's just being asked to do a ton when you make Caden Ivy play synergistically, you know, have one of them attack and, and then get it to the other in, in full flight, preferably Cade attack and get it to Ivy in full flight. And then Ivy either attacks the rim or draws more coverage or draws coverage and passes it to a shooter, um, whoever that's going to be in, in the starting lineup, uh, whether, you know, Cade, who has been hot and cold or Stewart if he's left open uh, or you know that guy swings it to somebody else drives whether that's on the perimeter or drives in and swings it to somebody else and you just get that drive and and kick and kick and kick and swing and you get a good opportunity but Cade has his own issues that go beyond just hitting his threes and turning the ball over less he I'm just getting really tired of Cade's kind of Mickey Mouse plays the really contact avoidant you know weak scoring opportunities he generates sometimes you look at the Denver game when in the second half, he got to the free throw line four times, which is, you know, which is good. And he ate free throws in a half. That's good. He did so by going up the middle. And he's not a burst player. He is a smarts player. He goes around the pick and roll, you know, around a pick. And like we saw in his rookie year and, and, and last year as well, he just, he slows down. He gets the defender on his back while he makes a decision. And his best bet is to do that and just go straight up the middle. You know, if he decides he's going to try to score at the basket, you know, whether it's making a pass out of that position or actually trying to score, go right up the middle, get in the middle of traffic, which is kind of a little more difficult to do with this spacing, but he, but he can do it, you know, use his strength to absorb contact, um, absorb, I just said absorb, absorb contact. And that's, I mean, if, if you are going up and elevating at the basket with like four guys around you, you're going to get a call a lot of the time. Or if you're approaching from the side of the basket, go right at the guy, slow it down so the ref can see it really well and make the right decision. Don't just jump into the guy when he's going straight up and contesting the, you know, contesting the shot in a way that's not going to get you a foul. So what Cade does a lot of the time instead, he curls around to try to put the ball off the backboard, like the, the outer part of the, you know, from, you know, basically fading away from the basket rather than just going straight at the rim. And this is a lower percentage opportunity. It's really because he's not the, the most bursty guy. Defenders can catch up to him. 
And you also just get swatted a lot from the front because it's super predictable. Uh, these are weak scoring chances. These are this is Cade willingly taking weak scoring chances rather than honestly, you know, honest to goodness attacking the basket. That's not enough. He can't do that. He will settle for weak floaters. He will settle for weak turnaround jumpers. He will just settle for jumpers in general. Um, but you know, if he can hit those at a high percentage, great. He's never going to hit them at as, as high percentage as he, he will hit shots in a restricted area. He is settling for bad shots in basically. I don't know if it's contact avoidance so much, but he's not putting in the work. You know, he is not going straight at his defender. He is not putting his body on the line. He, I don't know what the issue is, but these kind of weak shot attempts have to stop. You know, he's, he's got to show up to play. And sometimes he's not doing that on offense. Also, I mentioned his athleticism. He's slower than he was in his rookie season. Hopefully that doesn't last because Cade couldn't really afford to lose much athleticism. He wasn't the most bursty player in the first place. And if he's going to have trouble getting past anybody, that's a problem. Hopefully that'll resolve itself. Hopefully it's just, uh, you know, continuing to get back into full game shape. But I was joking with uh, with, with somebody last night that I wonder if the, the doctors at Henry Ford Health Systems operated on his brain by accident because he is just making mistakes that he did not make as a rookie. We are not seeing this cerebral floor general who sees several moves ahead and just makes smart passes just as is just has very high basketball IQ and you know is really smart on both ends. We're seeing a guy who is making all sorts of boneheaded plays on offense and falling asleep on defense. He had like three instances last night in which he just egregiously screwed up coverage off the ball. So I don't know what the problem is there. And I, I don't know how, is it just going to go away? You know, is it a crisis of confidence? You know, why is that happening? And what can be done about it? Because that's, that's been a big problem. A lot of what is special about Cade is his basketball IQ, and he has not been playing smart this season. And, you know, a few other negatives. Stewart was basically offensive dead weight, couldn't hit his shots, couldn't defend Kuzma. Uh, just really, really bad. Uh, Burks and Sasser both continue to struggle. Again, that shooting I can only think is going to improve, but... Uh, they've both been real bad uh, for the last couple of weeks. So uh, altogether tough game, rock bottom game, without a doubt. All right, next question. How do I think that Asar should be handled going forward? I think that Asar should be out of the starting lineup when Boyan returns, or even if Livers shows that he can handle more, that he can hit his shots. This is the main thing, that he's back into game shape and, and can contribute productively. Just as much as Asar is great on defense, and uh, yeah, I know I said this earlier in the show, it's, it's little, as much as he's great on defense, as much as he's been super good on the boards and is a super hard worker and, and so on and so forth, it's just that half-court offense hurts too much. He was never meant, I don't think he was ever meant to be playing at this many minutes. Again, it was, I think, a failure on the part of the front office uh, that he even ended up in that situation. And I'd play him off the bench and just play him more strategically and, and not have him on the floor, you know, in extended stretches in which the team really needs buckets. How long do you give Cade to decide if he is the guy? Uh, so I'll say, first of all, when it comes to this question, I mean, what's the alternative? If Cade, it, if it turns out that Cade is not the guy, the rebuild is really in trouble. I think the Pistons really have to hope that, uh, obviously, that he is the guy. Uh, you know, who knows? Maybe Ivy can be that superstar player. Uh, I think that's a lot to hope for. But maybe Duran, I think he'll be a top 10 center. But if you're a traditional big, your ability to impact the game is inherently limited. I mean, there are very few centers who can do that. Two of them are two of the best players in the league. That's Embiid and Jokic, but those are real special guys. Asar can be a real good player. I think he has all-star upside if he gets the shooting and uh, the creation off the dribble together. But I think if you're looking at Cade as that superstar creator and, you know, and the lead uh, and lead handler, he's kind of the key to all of this. This is his second season. He missed basically functionally his second season. He missed most of the season last year, most of last season with an injury. 
I think you start, if he continues to play like this all year, you start to get really worried, in part because that means his decision-making continues to be just severely compromised, and that would be bizarre and very scary. And then you give him to halfway through next season, and uh, if things still aren't going well, you start to get real concerned. And as far as his extension, uh, like, again, I'll, I'll go back to that. You start to get really concerned because his level of play right now is, is severely flawed. You know, regardless of his increase in scoring, I mean, this is, this particularly in the decision-making, this is not a good situation. I do give him his max extension if he continues to struggle like this all season. I'd be wary of doing so. Fortunately, I don't think Cade is the sort of baby like DeAndre Ayton who's going to say, well, you give me my max extension or I'm going to hate you forever. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But yeah, halfway through next season. And is Sadiq for Wiseman the worst trade in NBA history? I know this is a joke, but... Yeah, like I mentioned, it was, uh, I think, a, a super, super, super bad trade. Unless, you know, either Troy Weaver, who I think, again, was, was primarily behind this, is a genius, or it was just a, a very, very, very silly trade. Uh, Wiseman, you know, listener brought up a great point, that there are some guys who just have a lot of talent in a particular sport and choose to play that sport because of that and because they can succeed at it and make money rather than because they are actually fully committed to it and you know their heart is, is fully into it and the vast majority of professional players i mean have been working their entire life and they love the game and you know they want to compete they want to win a championship but you have some guys who are just there kind of going through the motions and it's possible that wiseman is one of those guys he was born with you know a great body for the nba he could stomp guys in in high school uh, he probably would have done well, who knows? I think if he played in college, he probably would have dropped if, if his, you know, because his processing would have, processing issues would have been, I think, very apparent. He only played three games before he, I think it was a recruiting violation. But I also just wonder, given how even, you know, even now, even when he's kind of on, you know, on the fringes of the league and his future in the NBA is really in doubt, he is largely, you know, last night was an anomaly in terms of his willingness to actually just put in the basic work of, you know, of working hard on the court. All right, so that will be it, I think, for today's episode. Hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, and, you know, hope we see things improve with the Pistons. I'd say we can only really uh, go upward from here. So as always, folks, want to thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you in next week's episode.